Right, Psalm 100, if you would, Psalm 100, very well-known <coughs> psalm. We'll start out there tonight, though we've got some other uh, passages we'll look at. Last, <coughs> excuse me, the last Sunday, we started a new series uh, called the Seven, not the, I got to drop the Seven Laws of Spiritual Growth. Uh, the would seem to be it, and they're not. These are just some that, that I've uh, come with, with that I think are a help. It's a collection of basic principles of the Christian life that really meet us right where we are. Uh, it's really uh, basic. And uh, the, the first law that we talked about has a pretty fundamental truth, but it's important for us to realize that he is God and we are not. That's the law right there. That was the law we talked about last week. You say, Pastor, that's kind of a, a given, isn't it? Well, uh, yes, but all spiritual reality must start at that point. And we talked about at length last week that every sin we've ever committed, every bad choice we've ever made, has come from the opposite of that, thinking we are God and He is not. We can make decisions and <clears throat> we can override Him. And so that is what we settled last week. Um, as long as we fight against God's right to be God, our lives will be miserable. We're going to be deeply miserable and frustrated. So we need to rip that big G off of our sweatshirt. We are not our own God. He is God and we need to live like that. This brings us to the second law, which kind of builds on the first law. Uh, law number one was he is God and we are not. The second law is God doesn't need us, but we desperately need him. God does not need us, but we desperately need him. This law tells us something about God and it tells us something about us. To say that God doesn't need us means that he is truly sovereign over the universe. He is the ruler and the Lord and the creator of all things. Now I want to read here uh, Psalm 100, and then we'll talk about this passage among a few others as well. Uh, verse 1, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here. We would uh, say what you would want us to say in this name. Now, the second law tells us something about God's transcendence. God is high and lifted up. Transcendence means that God created the universe and is separate from that creation. The universe is not an extension of God or a necessary part of God. Because, and by that I mean he existed in and of himself before the universe was ever created and existed uh, long before that, well, has existed for eternity. This law also points us to God's holiness. Holiness is what makes God, God. It is the goodness of God that separates him from his creation. It involves purity and sinlessness, of course. But beyond that, if God were not holy, he would not be God at all. It, finally, the law also impresses on us God's immensity. All power and wisdom and majesty reside in Him alone. He inhabits all things. His presence fills every part of the universe. Don't ask me really to explain all that. Uh, some of this is beyond our human comprehension. But we do know this. There is nowhere that you can go that He's not there. The Bible says in Psalm 15:3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. He's everywhere. To say that we desperately need God 
really reveals our inherent weakness. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners uh, also by choice. And the true condition of the human race is revealed in Romans chapter 3. Most of you are familiar with the Romans road, and we uh, go there to tell people of their condition. But listen to what it says here. I'll read. It's a very well-known verse. But pay attention to the nuns, not one, none, all unprofitable, none, no, not one. Listen to this here. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There are, they are all, excuse me, they are all going out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. There's a, it's kind of hard to miss the point of that passage, isn't it? <laughs> to miss the point of that passage, I should say. Uh, that, that is uh, easy for us to understand. There's none of us that are worth anything. We're not good. We're not uh, righteous. So the whole human race has rebelled against God. When God looks down from heaven, He cannot find a single righteous person in and of themselves. Not even one. See, the Bible here is very re over-reiterating. It says none, not one, not even one, none, altogether none. I mean, it's being very clear about its message here. Sin has so warped our human heart that we do not do anything truly good in His sight apart from Him. One of the best illustrations of this comes from the book of Judges. We're going through the book of Judges in the Sunday morning, or at least uh, preaching out of it for a while. And uh, we, we've <coughs> already talked about the fact that uh, throughout the book of Judges, the Bible says that men did that which was right in their own eyes. Uh, didn't do what was wrong, they did what was right in their own eyes. Meanwhile, the Bible calls them wicked. And they were these were days filled with uh, immorality and, and uh, apostasy and idolatry. Uh, twice in the book it says that men did right, that which was right in their own eyes. Yet every man doing what was right in their own eyes produced one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Most people think their behavior is right. Most people think that they are pretty good people. Uh, it may be They may be according to human standards, especially if you start comparing yourself with other people. But God does not try men by human standards. God tries men by His standards. I remember when I was in prison, I should probably... When I preached in prison, all right, I went there as a ministry. And I remember talking to a man that we didn't talk about it, but I knew he was a convicted murderer. And we talked about this uh, issue of salvation. And he tried to tell me how he was not a bad person. I mean, he did not do things to children. He did not, uh, there was a list of things he could compare him. He had far worse people in there to compare himself to. And almost all of us have someone to compare ourselves to to make us look pretty good. Measure yourself by drunks and drug dealers, you'll feel pretty good about yourself. But you measure yourself alongside Jesus Christ and you'll make out quite differently. So Jesus simply shows us how crooked and defiled our own lives really are. It's no wonder that, that the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Makes it very uh, supremely clear. Now how do we then reconcile the word unprofitable, none righteous, with the fact of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why would anybody love a useless, unprofitable person? The answer to that goes to the heart of the second law. God loves us in spite of our sin, not because of some worth that he found in us. I love this about the Lord. He loves us. Now, if we're honest, he found nothing worth saving in us at all. But he saved us anyway, because that's the kind of God he is. 
Now, obviously, that thought, as it should be, is very humbling. Uh, It's, I guess, for all of us, if we think about it that way, it's going to humble us. Yet at the same time, it's very thrilling as well. Because none of us deserve God's grace. By the way, if you deserve God's grace, it wouldn't be grace. It would be merit. And none of us deserved it. None of us can merit it. So any worth that we have to God is worth that He gives us. We have value because He values us, not because of anything in us. I, uh, I'm not into art, especially not. I like art like you see at the Redlands up in Watertown. I like that kind. The kind of art that uh, they call modern, and there's different names. I, I think of the two boys that were standing and looking at a painting one time, and one whispers to the other, get out of here, they think we... You know, that kind of art, I have no appreciation for that kind of art. And yet that art is worth, is, is very, very valuable because there are people that value that art and that's what makes it valuable. Otherwise, it'd be completely worthless. I tell you, if I took a, uh, some markers and some crayons to a big blank sheet of paper and did my best, it wouldn't be worth anything to anybody because nobody would value it. But uh, I think it would still look better than some of those I've seen. But anyway, they value that and that's what makes it valuable because somebody values it. We are valuable because our Creator values us. Praise the Lord. The second law exposes many things in our life. Our phony independence, our casual arrogance, our sinful pride shows us that we are never in control. We were never in control, even when we think we are. We find this concept throughout the whole Bible in John 15:5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. I'd rather it said little, but it says nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who, will, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to think of anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Now, let me take a moment, because as I'm studying this and putting this together, I understand that this is a positive affirmation generation. We are all about encouraging, we're all about giving trophies, we're all about recognition, and uh, some of, aside from the giving trophies, this isn't bad uh, to be to have positive affirmation. But this is a very unpleasant thought uh, to for a person like that to take in. And so I was kind of doing some self-examination because my bookshelves are loaded down with books that uh, help in the areas of leadership, personal growth, self-improvement. I have a book right here I brought up just for the purpose of this illustration. This is not a Christian book. But it is a book that I read two times last year because I was so enamored with the principles therein. It's called Atomic Habits. I encourage it for anybody that would like to read it. It has some really good helps in how to improve some of the habits in your life, how to stop the bad ones, start good ones. And uh, it was a great help to me. Now, I love books like this. I love to read about Ben Franklin and his personal journey that he had uh, with self-improvement. And so it goes against the grain, even in my own heart, to hear a message like this that says, by the way, you're nothing, you're worth nothing, and you can do nothing. You know, now go home and drive safe. You know, you can do nothing in and of yourself. I don't believe there's anything wrong with trying to improve yourself, especially in the area of your character. I think those are good aspirations to have. And I, so I spent a little time this week just meditating on the contrast between these two endeavors because I do want to clarify this. Uh, because this is exactly what I've been talking about all year, growth. And in the beginning of the year, probably all of, the, of December, I was 
making goals for myself and putting things uh, in place in my own life, reading books like this and getting helps to help myself improve in every area that I can. Uh, so am I wasting my time when I do that? I don't believe so. However, if we base our dreams and our goals on our own ability alone, we're going to be in trouble. Let me put it this way. There's a difference between self-growth and spiritual growth. Self-growth, nothing wrong with it, but self-growth is the process of developing skills, behaviors, actions, attitudes, habits to benefit your life. Spiritual growth is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And so neither one of these are wrong. I think both of them are important to live a balanced life. And, and by the way, I hope that you're involved in each of them. But I want to look at the difference between the two. Self-growth, things like this right here. Self-growth is focused on the external. That's what this book's all about. Habits, how to live your best life and do the right things. Spiritual growth focuses on the inside. Uh, Self-growth focuses on actions. Spiritual growth focuses on character. Self-growth is results-based. Spiritual growth is person-based. Uh, Self-growth is reaching an ideal. Spiritual growth is becoming a person, Romans 8.29. Self-growth is dependent on your ability and your drive and your dedication, where spiritual growth is a byproduct of your faithfulness and obedience to God. There's a difference in those two. Neither one of them are specifically wrong, but we're talking tonight about specifically spiritual growth. Now understand this, nothing good is ever easy. Doesn't that stink about life? Nothing really good is ever easy. Uh, if it's easy, it's probably not that good. Spiritual growth is often more difficult and more unpleasant than even self-growth is. James 1, 2-3 talks about how we grow in the area of patience. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. I don't like Have you ever prayed for patience? Don't. Read about it. All right? Just learn about it externally. Don't pray that God will bring But no, I jest, but the truth is we don't like, really, uh, the, when we grow spiritually, <coughs> we, we don't always like the way that God grows it. However, the transformation that happens in spiritual growth is far more permanent and genuine than what we learn out of a book. And I'm not knocking this. I like to learn things out of books, and I like to apply things to help me be a better man. But uh, spiritual growth is a lot more permanent and a lot more genuine. Because where personal growth is a change in the formation of your habits and your life style, spiritual growth is transforming who you are from the inside. And that's the big difference. Romans chapter 12, if you turn there, Romans chapter 12 talks about this, and I think uh, gives us a great contrast between the two. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the presentation of our body results in a transformed life. The body of the believer is the vehicle through which the new life is expressed. Okay, We don't, we don't cultivate the body like the ancient Greeks did when a physical specimen was everything and they were all about beauty and strength, even though some of us have it. Uh, 
Thank you. Thank you for not laughing. Everybody's like, yes, that's right. You have it. All right. We don't cultivate the body. We don't crucify the body like they do, aesthetics do. Uh, people that whip themselves or crawl for miles on hands and knees to try to hurt themselves to gain some merit of God's mercy. That's called aesthetics. We don't, we don't uh, crucify the body. We do, however, consecrate the body which uh, that the Holy Spirit who has made it His temple, so we consecrate that to Him. The believer who presents His body has then set Himself up to be transformed, to be changed. <coughs> he is changed morally. The Bible says, be not conformed to this world. The original word for conformed here is to conform oneself to another's pattern. This is the, one of the differences between self-growth and spiritual growth. It is person-based. We're not to be fashioned by the world. J.B. Phillips says it this way, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. The world has its fads, its fashions. They change with every generation. But the believer whose body has been laid on the altar for God is morally changed. His life is molded not from without by society, but from within by the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus illustrates this perfectly with Solomon and a flower. He says in Mark 6, or Matthew 6.29, he, he's pointing out to the flowers in the field. And he says this, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What a profound statement. See, Solomon's splendor was put on from without. These lilies, all their glory came from within. And so the believer is not molded by the world's morals. He should set the standard uh, for the world. He has changed morally. Number two, he's changed mentally. It says here, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a call for a transfigured life. The Greek word <coughs> is metamorphunei. The word, uh, we get metamorphosis from it. Uh, the dictionary de defines metamorphosis as the change of form or change of character. Of course, what is our number one illustration in, in nature for metamorphosis? Caterpillar. Nothing about a caterpillar would lead an engineer to believe this thing can fly. But there is potential in that little worm, isn't there? We know what happens. It enters the cocoon. It transforms. It changes so we don't recognize it as the same. And it is this kind of change that the Holy Spirit wishes to work in the life of a believer. But to do it, he has to have control of the body and free access to the mind. That is why the Bible says to present them to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Have you ever had a discussion maybe with friends or somebody's asked you about the idea of whether or not you would die for Christ? I've had that thought many times. I read about people who have given their life and martyred them, and uh, I hope, I hope that if it ever came to it, I would not renounce the fear of, uh, for fear of death. I hope I would be faithful to the end. It's kind of a hard question to answer until you've got a gun barrel right here, you know. But uh, I hope that I would be faithful to the end. But thank the Lord, He has not asked us to give our life as a martyr, he's asked us to give our lives as living sacrifices, right here in Romans chapter 12. Give your life as a living sacrifice. He must have that to give you, uh, to help you grow and change you mentally. He also is changed motivationally. It finishes here that you may prove is that a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Every Christian is responsible to discover what God's will is for their life. God doesn't ask us to do anything that's not for our good. God, uh, remember what Joseph said at the end of his long journey there? His brothers, he finally looked back and he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. 
didn't realize it at the time, but everything God demands of us is for the good, even though we can't always see it. It is Satan, always Satan, who suggests that God can't be trusted, like he did to Eve. Have God said, he shall not surely die. Uh, it raises those questions. Whenever God puts a period somewhere, Satan always comes along with a question. You be careful for that. So, But God's will is good. <coughs> it's also acceptable. He does not ask us to do anything which we cannot accept. And finally, the Bible says here that God's will is perfect. No plan of ours can improve on God. We just get that through our heads tonight. No plan of ours can improve on God. We only see fragments of our past and what's going on right now. He sees present, he sees past, he sees future in its total context. He controls all circumstances, his will is perfect, and so let's just trust him. We serve a God whose power is unlimited, who never grows weary, whose plans will not be defeated, whose ways are far beyond my own. He does not need us, but we so desperately need him. That is the second law we're focused on tonight. Now, I want to summarize the second law in several statements. God is free to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. Job learned that. learned the hard way. Sometimes we learn that when tragedy strikes our life. He's free to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. God is not obligated to create us, nor was he obligated to save us. Everything God does is for, it, for us is an act of sheer, sovereign, amazing grace. In other words, we, we deserve nothing good, and yet he gives us so much. We don't deserve his love. And yet, uh, what does the Bible said? Uh, first loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ first loved us. Uh, we, uh, we are so grateful for God. We desperately need him. We uh, admit first that God is God and we are not. And then we uh, understand that we desperately need him. Our text that we read, Psalm 100, uh, tells us we're to give thanks and praise to the Lord for two reasons. Number one, he is God. That's our first law, by the way. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. You could put in parentheses, and you are not. <laughs> Even though it's not there, we understand that. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. And then, the second reason, because He is good. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him, and bless His name. For the Lord is good. The acknowledgement of who and what God is, He's God, and He's good, <coughs> leads us to, or should lead us, to three responses. We shout for joy. That's why verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. And then we serve the Lord with gladness, verse 2. We sing with joy, verse 2. There's a statement of ownership in verse 3. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The emphasis here is that there's no real self-made men or women. All we have of course, I understand the principle of hard work and dedication and commitment, and we can be all that we can be. I, I get that. But all we really have, uh, we've been blessed by God. We've been given, it has been given to us by God. I cannot, if I ran, let's say I went to uh, the Olympics and ran in one of those races, I, I wouldn't get any, okay, I, others can because put a lot more work in. But yet, <laughs> even the ones who win, they can do it because God's given them the ability. Everything that... What, what about Michael Jackson? Did God make him? Did God give him his talents? Yes, I believe he did. God made Michael Jackson, and God gave Michael Jackson those talents, if you want to call it talents. Uh, it, the, the fact that he misused them, the fact that he uh, uh, did not give his talents back to the Lord is between him and God. It doesn't change the fact that that's where they came. And then number five, this leads us on to visible public thanksgiving. Verse number four, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. 
It's almost as if God is saying, you want to meet me? Start by singing a hymn, praising. This is surely meant to encourage Israel to praise the Lord, uh, and uh, we ought to be more bold and public in our praise as well. <coughs> All right, uh, we, we got to rush along here because I'm not as far along as I thought I should be, but uh, when you feel that you, we, we understand, verse, verse 5 here is what I want to focus on here. The psalm ends here. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, His truth endureth to all generations. Because God's mercy endures forever, has no beginning, has no end, before time began, He was the eternal Father of mercies. Since God is eternal, His mercy extends as far into the future as the mind can, God's mercy will yet endure. When you feel you have used up your allotment of mercy, you find an infinite river flowing from the throne of God with His mercy. Isn't that a blessing? It's never used up. God's mercy is not like the weather. Okay? It doesn't change uh, with the season. It is everlasting. It does not depend on what you do or do not do. Let me, let me make this statement, and this is something I, I, I always pounded home to teenagers as a youth pastor, because teenagers need to hear this message, but so does everybody. There is, in fact, I would often start with a question uh, in, in uh, class once in a while. I'd bring this up. What can you do to make God love you more? And I'd get all kinds of answers. I can obey my parents, read the Bible more, can do more uh, good for him. I can witness to more people, whatever they might say. But here's a statement I want to make. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. His mercy is everlasting. We see God's love and mercy, uh, which we just did in remembrance of what he did on the cross. But we see it there most clearly. I remember when I first first stepped into a Baptist church. And uh, soon after that, we got I got saved. and My family joined that church. I was baptized there. But on the bulletin board in the fellowship hall of that church, there was, I still remember the sign, uh, had, you know, the old, <coughs> the old uh, cut out letters that they did up with staples. And uh, the sign said this, I asked Jesus, how much did you love me? And he said, this much, spread out his arms and died. I remember that, and I love the thought of that. That shows the love and mercy of God like nothing else, what he did on the cross. Fix your eyes on the cross of Calvary. Gaze upon the dying Son of God, and there you will find amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. All things are moving according to His divine plan. You may think sometimes or feel that God is working against you, but that is not so. All things are for you, but you do not always see it. God is ordering these things for our best. As one chaplain put it, Psalm 100 makes a strong case for gladness, as the sure sign that we are living by grace and not our efforts. What a great thought that is. Happy Christians honoring a happy God. Spurgeon said our happy God deserves to be worshipped by happy people. And he's right. If our hearts are not filled with joy as we consider the Lord and who He is and what He is, uh, we need to discover the grace of God. The first law, God is God and we are not. That drives us to our knees. The second law keeps us there until we cry for mercy. It is actually growth in our spiritual life. If we get to the point in our life where we bow our heads before the Lord, Lord God, I need you. I can't do this by myself. You see, God's enablement kicks in at the end of our own ability. When we finally realize that I do not have the power to do this in on my own, that's when God's power can kick in. I remember when I was uh, when my daughter Barbara was really little, we, we I've always done dad daughter dates, and we were out on one of our dates, and we had come back from a 
<coughs> we were coming back on a, a little different route, and it was a gravel road out in the country, no traffic or anything. And, and she, once in a while, when we're on gravel roads like that, I would let my kids sit on my lap in the car. So she was uh, pretty little. She was steering the car. I was doing the pedals, and she was doing so. She said, Dad, I want to do it myself. I want to do it myself. And because uh, I had my hand down and still protecting it. I want to do it myself. And so I said, okay, do it yourself. And she took it. And uh, of course, being very little, unable to understand how a vehicle works, she immediately started to go off the road. There was hardly any ditch, but it didn't matter anyway, because a gully or whatever, it wouldn't matter. So there was hardly any ditch, it was just straight. And so I just let her go a little bit. I just seeing what she did. And she, you can imagine, uh, freaked out pretty bad. Help, 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 help. She's going off the road, and you know, she doesn't understand to jerk it back, and so she's going off, and then finally, you know, my hand's closing over her, and we got back on the road. But I thought, that is such a great picture of our Christian life. So, God, I got it. I got it. I got it. Let go. And then we think we have it. We think we're in control. And then we turn ourselves into a disaster. Oh, Lord, help, 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 help. And then his hands will come over and get us back on track again. We see that all through the book of Judges. Hey, he doesn't need us. We desperately. Let's not forget this. Uh, let's understand our deficiency. <coughs> Years ago I heard this statement, you'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. When Jesus is all you have, then you know that Jesus is all you need. If you are weary, if you're tired, if you're discouraged, if your life is going nowhere, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to know God, then drop what you're doing and run to the cross because that's where we find those things. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Don't make excuses. Lay hold on Jesus Christ and hold on tight. He's a wonderful Savior and He's a wonderful Lord to those who trust in Him. God does not need us, but we so desperately need Him. Let's not forget it. That's the second law of the spiritual life. Uh, we understand God is God and we are not. Secondly, God does not need us, but we so desperately. Father, we're grateful for this truth. Help us to drive this home into our own hearts. <coughs> Help us to realize our inadequacy. Help us to realize our weakness. And as we mentioned this morning, you can still work through our weakness, but it's you, not us, that does it. Help us to understand that. Help us to realize our desperate need of you and not be content to live without you. Your power upon our lives. I pray that you'd help us now as we go out through this evening. Give us safety on the way.